Man is the measure of all things. Protagoras. Hey guys, and welcome to Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. As always, I'm Credo. And I'm Glaucon. And on the show, our goal is simple. We want to take you on our journey from place to place, from era to era, to really put our ideas about the world and about ourselves to the test. And we hope by doing so, it will bring us closer to the truth, because it really does matter how we view the world. A quick disclaimer, the locations, topics, and ideas are solely for educational purposes and do not reflect in any way, sort, or kind the views of the hosts themselves. And with that, let's get on with the show. Alright guys, so welcome back to the podcast. So we are on episode 9, and we're going to talk mainly on book 2 in Plato. But before we get to that, I want to go back to some things we touched on in book 7. Specifically, the divided line. So the divided line, it's a correlating idea to the allegory of the cave. So it starts out at the bottom with the most basic idea of knowledge, which is imagining and perceiving. So there, it's like you have a feeling and you just take it at face value. So you could either make moral judgment off of that, you can make a moral assumption based on that, um, but it's the lowest level of knowledge. And it's basically just a reactionary level of knowledge. You just react to the things that you experience. And that would be categorized as opinion. The next level is the level of belief where you have faith or conviction about the thing that you believe. So this is the idea that you might have scriptural knowledge, for example, if someone were to ask if something were wrong, like stealing. It's also the common sense idea that the tree that you see in front of you is real, or the rock you're holding is real. And even when we look at this now, it seems strange that this is placed so low on the idea of knowledge, but again, we'll get to it in time. So this is completely reasonable, but again, it's still opinion. And then once we move into knowledge, the third level is thinking and understanding. This is what we might call modern day science. So I'm thinking about why it's bad to steal, for example, or I'm thinking about why the scriptures are the way they are. And I'm questioning the fundamental ideas of reality. For example, what is it made of, right? There is this notion that what we perceive in the world is really through the lens or the filter of a human being. It may not actually be how it is. Think of the ideas of atoms. For example, that something could be 99% empty, even though it looks entirely solid to the human eye. And then the last level is intelligence. And this is reason. Think about the enlightenment in the intellectual sense. And it is itself the form of the good. All right, so that, that all sounds really good. And what's interesting about this idea that we see in Plato is that there's a very similar idea in Buddhism, and that uh, has to do with the three levels of knowledge. And the three levels of knowledge in Buddhism are scriptural belief, reflective knowledge, and experiential knowledge. So it starts off with the idea that if someone asks me why something is right or wrong, why something is good or bad, I would respond and cite scripture and verse and say, well, if you read this scripture, it says stealing is wrong and I should not steal. If we're going to talk about the reflective level, then we're looking at something like deontological rationale or a utilitarian rationale going back to our episode four, I believe. And there, right, if someone asked me why stealing is wrong, I would give Kant's categorical imperative and say, any action that can't be universalized 
is fundamentally wrong or something along those lines. So stealing would be wrong because if everybody stole, we wouldn't be able to have any possessions. That's a philosophical reason for why stealing is wrong. And at the last level of understanding or knowledge, I have an experience of why stealing is wrong. And so I have a holistic, full, complete, experiential understanding of why stealing is wrong. So that transcends the merely reflective understanding. And uh, I think often in philosophy, right, people think, well, the reflective understanding is kind of the, the end of the road. But for Buddhists, right, there's this additional level of understanding, experiential wisdom, experiential knowledge. I think this is a good thing to bring up when we talk about Plato here, because when we think about the allegory of the cave and getting out of the cave and really experiencing the sun and really experiencing the tree, which would be equivalent to experiencing the form of the good or understanding real truth, or in Buddhism, understanding Dharma clearly. That kind of level of understanding, I think, is similar in both of these conceptions, where it transcends the merely reflective level of understanding that we normally see in philosophy. No, it absolutely does. And I really appreciate you tying Buddhism into that, because being able to see the parallels between Eastern and Western thought is particularly mind-blowing. Absolutely. No, it's always interesting to me when I read Plato and then go back and read some Buddhist scripture, the Dhammapada, or read some Taoist work like the Tao Te Ching or the I Ching, I always see tremendous amounts of overlap and similarity in their ideas about things. So it is, it is remarkable, actually. Nice. So would you like to uh, lead us into book two? Absolutely. So we ended book one with a kind of situation where there wasn't any real ending to the conversation, right? Because Socrates, at the very end of book one, said that he still didn't know what justice was or whether the good person was really happy, the just person was really happy. So the situation had not been resolved. Thrasymachus was happy. Thrasymachus had been softened by the conversation that they'd had and had changed his mind, right? And so in book two, we get a second series of arguments that injustice does pay. But this time, we don't get it from people that actually advocate the view, right? Because in book one, we got that argument from Thrasymachus. And Thrasymachus was a person who advocated that view. Now, we're getting the argument from two of Plato's brothers, Glaucon and Adimantus. And uh, Glaucon was Plato's older brother. So these two interlocutors now are going to take Thrasymachus's side, but they're taking his side of the argument for a very specific reason, right? They're taking his side of the argument because they want to make sure that Socrates, at least that's what's being said here, right? They want to make sure that Socrates really does his best to try to defend the idea that justice pays and that the just person is the happiest person. Because these are very important ideas to us, right? So here, the idea is that Glaucon and Adimantus are going to argue and make an argument that they themselves don't believe in or don't want to be true. And they're going to do that to try to make sure that we don't leave any stone unturned and we really get at whether or not the just person can be happy, as we were saying. And so what's interesting here is that this goes back to our conversation when we talked about the lackeys, and we mentioned that the philosopher had to be courageous. And so 
Here, Glaucon and Adimantus are actually being courageous because they are putting an idea to the test that they hold very dear. And that is the idea that uh, the just person is the happiest of people and that justice is something that pays. And it pays internally, uh, not just for its external benefits. And that'll be more clear as we move through into book two here. But so I'll just read a little bit here to kick us off. For Thrasymachus seems to me like a snake to have been charmed by your voice sooner than he ought to have been. But in my mind, the nature of justice and injustice have not yet been made clear. Setting aside their rewards and results, I want to know what they are in themselves and how they inwardly work in the soul. So here, Glaucon is telling Socrates that he feels that Thrasymachus, although he may be satisfied, he actually shouldn't have been satisfied yet, and that it has not been made clear yet how the inner workings of the soul unfold in terms of justice in the sense that there has to be some kind of internal benefit to it, right? Then we move to this interesting statement here, which is a kind of version of the social contract idea that we have much later on in the Renaissance. And here, uh, I'll just read a little bit of this. Justice, a compromise between doing and suffering evil. They say that to do injustice is by nature good, to suffer injustice evil, but that the evil is greater than the good. And so when men have both done and suffered injustice and have had experience of both, not being able to avoid the one and obtain the other, they think that they had better agree among themselves to have neither. Hence there arise laws and mutual covenants, and that which is ordained by law is turned by them to be lawful and just. And this is just interesting to bring up because, you know, a lot of times people think about knowledge and wisdom and ideas as steadily progressing through time. Sort of like you look at the evolutionary tree and it starts with reptiles and then it moves to mammals and then we have apes and then we have humans and we have this steady progress. And philosophy is often looked at in this way. But what is very interesting when you look at the Greek philosophical ideas and Chinese and Indian ideas as well, and I'm sure there are others, when you look at these ancient thinkers, you start to realize that it's not so clear that we're making progress, and it's not so clear that we've eclipsed these ancient peoples in any sense. Just to kind of one more point, in one of our recent podcasts, we mentioned this idea that it's necessary to have food, shelter, and clothing, and so forth, before you can really do philosophy. And this is, you know, a precursor to something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So that's another idea that's kind of foreshadowed by Plato, right? Yeah, I thought this was an interesting tie-in to the Renaissance and those later ideas. I just wanted to get your take on whether or not you think that this sounds like justice seems like a second best situation or like it's settling for something, right? It sounds like it's something that, for example, if one were powerful enough that they would have justice, but because they're not powerful enough, they have to settle for this to protect themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea is really that if I have my little farm and I have a bunch of weapons and I'm really strong, then I can protect my farm, you know, and my neighbors don't really take my farm from me. And if I want to take some stuff from them, I can use my superior weaponry and strength to take whatever I want from their farm. And they're kind of always worried about me. So it works to be the powerful, unjust person 
in that situation. But then the problem is, is that there's always someone bigger and there's always someone with more weapons. And if you're trying to get along in a group of people and maybe you've got a division of labor going on where you've got some people that are good at certain things or making certain things that you can't make, you're trading these things and you want to be able to rely on the idea that if you work hard to make a piece of land better or you work hard to obtain some property that you're going to be able to have that property with some kind of safety. So the idea of, of a social contract is this idea that you know life is sort of this crazy free-for-all and it's complete chaos. And then human beings decide, look, I'll give up my ability to steal stuff and beat people up and do whatever I feel like doing whenever I feel like it so that other people don't do it to me. So I'm willing to compromise and give up some of the good things in life, like stealing and punching people really hard and stuff like that, so that other people aren't going to steal my stuff and punch me really hard. It's interesting that you're mentioning the good things in life, <laughs> <laughs> like the unjust things, because that's a good move into the next point. It almost seems that Glaucon and Adamantus are asking Socrates to show them that, you know, imagine there's a just person with an unjust reputation and an unjust person with a just reputation, Right. First of all, if justice means happiness and unjustice means unhappiness, then wouldn't that seem like a just person would actually be unhappy in that instance? That's right. And it is very interesting, right? So we've got this challenge to the basic idea, which we've been talking about, that the just person is the happiest of people. And we've also talked a little bit about this idea of being just unto death or martyring yourself for the sake of justice. And really, the idea of martyring yourself for the sake of justice is related to what we're talking about right here, <laughs> because, you know, the person is basically dying for the sake of justice. And for that to make sense, there's got to be some way in which justice is more important or more good than continuing to live without it or something like that, right? So it's a related idea. So we'll jump in here to how Glaucon argues this initially, which is with this story about the ring of Gyges. And this is the idea that there's a ring of invisibility, right? And so a person finds this ring of invisibility and takes it off of a dead body, actually, and puts it on. And it's very reminiscent of something like the Lord of the Rings, right? And so he puts this ring on and realizes that the ring allows him to become invisible. And what Glaucon talks about is this I'm just going to read a little bit here, which is right as soon as he realizes that he's able to be invisible. This is the very next moment. Whereupon he contrived to be chosen one of the messengers who were sent to the court. Where as soon as he arrived, he seduced the queen and with her help conspired against the king and slew him and took the kingdom. So he, he discovers he has the power of invisibility. He immediately goes to the king's court, seduces the queen, has sex with her, and then kills the king and then takes the kingdom. That's like the first order of business, right? And then going on a little bit, he says, the application of the story of Gyges. Suppose now that there were two such magic rings and the just put on one and the unjust the other. No person can be imagined to be of such an iron nature that he would stand fast in justice. No person would keep his hands off what was not his own when he could safely take what he liked out of the market or go into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure or kill or release from prison whom he would and in all respects, to be like a god among men. So 
Here we have this idea that, look, if there was this ring with this power of invisibility, wouldn't any person who had this ring be compelled to use it and to exercise the powers with impunity that you're able to exercise with this ring? And then once again, like I said, this is very reminiscent of the Lord of the Rings, right? And here, this is going to kind of run into this argument we were talking about before about the gods, actually, in the Euthyphro being less than perfect, right? Because here, when he ends this with, and in all respects, to be like a god among people, right? So here, the idea is that gods have power to do what they want for themselves in this kind of a way. But this actually, this idea actually goes against what Plato's been arguing, right? Because Socrates and Plato think that the gods actually have to be perfect, and so they can't actually do bad things. But here, we have the idea that person would basically be like a superhero. And as a superhero, you know, you're not a perfect being. And so you would be susceptible to your worser nature, right? And so you would possibly, right, steal things if you could steal with impunity and engage in sexual activity that you could engage in with impunity and try to obtain power with impunity and all of these types of things, right? And so it's basically an argument that given the ability to act with impunity, I would actually act in line with my baser nature. And this is connected to this social contract idea we were talking about earlier, because there also, right, it's kind of an external thing that's causing me to be just. No, absolutely. And aside from the whole, that didn't take long comment <laughs> with the ring of Geiges. Uh, it's interesting that when we look at superpowers, we automatically almost start thinking of how we could abuse that, right? How we can kind of rise above the the people and basically make everyone on earth the lower class except us, right? But I was just going to note that Adamantus then starts taking it in the direction of showing that the unjust man could then grow wealthy by injustice, right? And then he could just give part of his money or whatever his wealth in making religious sacrifice, and then it would basically make him a good person in the eyes of the God. That's right. And that goes back to what we talked about when we talked about book one and the interaction with Cephalus when he was making his sacrifices and this idea that the wealthy person, right, right is capable of balancing their credits and debits on the way out. It's kind of interesting how in that way, though, it's like the gods don't question whether the money is honest money or, or not, you know, it's just they only care about the worship rather than where it came That's from. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so just to go on a little bit with this picture they're painting of the good person, right? So here Glaucon goes on a little bit later and he says, talking about the just person, right? Let him be the best of men and let him be thought the worst. Then he will have been put to the proof and we shall see whether he will be affected by the fear of infamy and its consequences. And let him continue thus to the hour of death, being just and seeming to be unjust. When both have reached the utmost extreme, the one of justice and the other of injustice, let judgment be given which of them is the happier of the two. So here, the unjust person is like living high off the hog, right? Like the dictator and has, you know, a harem and massive wealth and the ability to do anything he or she wants. And... The good person is despised by everyone, thought to be a horrible person, to have committed the most atrocious crimes, be innocent of them, but to have this horrible reputation. 
and then to basically have a bad end to their life, right? And so now, which of these two people is the happiest? And so obviously, we're going to be thinking, well, it's obviously the dictator who's going to be more happy here. And so when we actually take a step back, think about this, you know, we have this idea of Christ, right, being put to death and put to death by his own people, by the Jews, and was hated. And, you know, they were given a chance to release him, and they decided not to release him, you know. And so right up until the very end, he was being called bad names and had a crown of thorns and spear to the side and all kinds of bad things happening to him. And his followers were receiving the same kind of treatment. In the case of Socrates, right, we have a similar situation, right, where he has a trial and all of society is saying that he's the person who's damaged the youth and has corrupted the youth and he's undermining the state. And so, you know, he also has a bad reputation, right? And so this is kind of like, this should be the worst, you know, this person should be the least well-off of anyone in either one of these two cases, right? And let me just say one more thing about this. So after that statement I just read a minute ago, Socrates says, wow, how energetically you polish them up for the decision, first one and then the other, as if they were two statues. And then Glaucon goes on and he says, this I will proceed to describe, that as you may think the description a little too coarse, I ask you to suppose, Socrates, that the words which follow are not mine. Let me put them into the mouths of the eulogist of injustice. And then he says, they will tell you that the just man who is thought unjust, will be scourged, racked, and bound, will have his eyes burned out, and at last, after suffering every kind of evil, he will be impaled. The just man will learn by such experience that he ought to seem and not be just. The words of Aeschylus may be more truly spoken of the unjust than of the just, for the unjust is pursuing a reality. He does not live with a view to appearance. He wants to be really unjust and not to seem only. So here, right, the just person is scourged, racked, bound, and, and has his eyes burned out, and then is impaled, right? So here, you know, it's like they're drawn and quartered, their entrails are pulled out of them while they're alive, you know, and they suffer the worst possible fate, right? And then how could you possibly think this person is happier than the dictator who's having a huge party, and everybody in the country is praising them as a god, right? <laughs> Right, right. It goes back to the first, actually, the beginning of this section and how it talks about, prove to us, Socrates, that justice is the thing which is both good because it's good, but also because it gives good to the person who possesses it. That's absolutely right. And just to go back to what you were saying about being able to appease the gods, right? Here's a, a really good quote. The gods, too, may be turned from their purpose. And men pray to them and avert their wrath by sacrifices and soothing entreaties, and by libations and the odor of fat, when they have sinned and transgressed. So there we go, kind of this idea that you can charm the gods, right, to your favor, even if you've been a wicked person, right? And then another thing, this is Adimantus here, he says, The universal voice of mankind is always declaring that justice and virtue are honorable, but grievous and toilsome and that the pleasures of vice and injustice are easy of attainment and are only censured by law and opinion. So this is a power-packed sentence, really, because the idea that pleasure and vice and injustice are easy of attainment, they're easy to obtain, right? So the road of wickedness is wide, as they say. And the only reason that they're actually bad is because of law and opinion. So there we have a kind of moral relativism, 
and the idea that morality is relative and that the only reason certain things are considered bad, it's nothing to do with any deep reason about why they're bad. It's just because it's illegal, right? And then on the other side, we have this idea that human beings are always saying that justice is good and that virtue is good. But they also think that being a just person and a virtuous person is a very difficult thing to do. And it's grievous and toilsome. It's a lot of work. And this is like the idea of the straight and narrow road and the wide road. You're absolutely right. And that same part even continues saying that honesty is for the most part less profitable than dishonesty, right? And that individuals are quite ready to call wicked men happy and to honor them both in public and in private. So about this, I mean, what is Socrates, how does he respond to this, you know, notion that the unjust person and those engaging in injustice would be way more profitable and way more happy than right. those engaging right. in justice. So, it, so it's interesting, right? Because we have this kind of initial foray into this question in book one. We have some pretty good arguments made for why justice pays and why injustice doesn't pay. But then we kind of turn the corner on that conversation and the conversation gets reignited, as we said, with Glaucon and Adimantus. And here, they really, I mean, really lay down a hardcore argument for injustice being the better way to go. And the idea that any human being who had the power to be invisible, for example, would do bad stuff. And then Socrates really doesn't respond, right? He doesn't really respond in any kind of a robust way. And at least not initially, right? And so, so it's a very kind of a puzzling thing, right? So the question is, you know, why is it done like this? Or why is Plato doing this, where he's making this really strong argument for injustice, right? And so a couple thoughts about that, right? So one thing is, and I think we've mentioned this before in passing, is that Socrates wants to look at the strongest version of the opponent's argument. And so when you think about fallacies in logic, right? There's this fallacy called straw man. And straw man is this idea that you take someone else's argument and you take a kind of weak, beat up version of the argument that's subject to all kinds of worries and you destroy that argument and then you claim to have destroyed the stronger argument. And what Plato likes to do, and I think most people that really care about figuring out what's true do this, they look at the strongest version of their opponent's argument and then try to undermine that. And if they've undermined that, they've really won the argument, right? And this is actually something that the Dalai Lama recommends doing. If you're going to have a discussion with someone and try to convince them of something, that you should listen carefully enough to what they're saying so that you can restate their argument in stronger terms than they were able to before you attack it. And so this, I think, is part of what Plato's doing here. He's giving us a very strong argument. The other thing that Plato's doing that is a little bit more like sophistry here, though, is that by talking about injustice in this kind of hyperbolic way and saying that, look, there's nothing to the just person's happiness. There's no reason for us to think that they would be happy here. There are only reasons for us to think that they would be unhappy. And also the argument that if you had the ring of Gyges, you would automatically be predisposed to do bad things. Those two points strike the reader as wrong in some way, even though they can't quite put their finger on exactly what's wrong about it. And so that is part of what Plato's after here, I think. 
he wants the reader to hear the discussion of the Ring of Gyges and say to him or herself, well, that can't be exactly right, because I don't think I would necessarily do a bunch of bad things if I had the ring. Or I can't imagine that every person would do bad things if they had the ring, even if I might do a few bad things. And then the question is going to be, well, why is that? And that's going to have to do with, you know, some kind of internal way in which we relate to the moral. And also, right, when he talks about this idea that the good person being put to death in some horrible way, you know, and the vicious person flourishing, you know. So these kinds of discussions have this twofold purpose. One is to act as a very strong argument for the other side. And the other, I think, is to cause the person to reflect on the fact that it's kind of an overstatement of things. It's too hyperbolic. Glad that you brought that up. It's, it's important to note that he really did try to build the strongest argument. And I think at the same time, if I'm not mistaken, the same time around the writing of this book, Plato had just started the Academy. And I have to think that that had some influence on him, the kind of moving from the, I don't want to necessarily brand it all as the Socratic method, but moving more towards an open and kind of positive conversation where it doesn't just end in you know, confusion or no result at the end. I think he really wanted to make sure that he gave someone something they could run away with and kind of a departure. No, that's from right. And um, also, right, an interesting point kind of related to what we were just talking about. Glaucon and Adimantus, this is a quote from Socrates here, able to argue so well, but unconvinced by their own arguments. The epithet is very appropriate, for there is something truly divine in being able to argue as you have done for the superiority of injustice and remaining unconvinced by your own arguments. And I do believe that you are not convinced. This I infer from your general character, for had I judged you only from your speeches, I should have mistrusted you. So here, we have this kind of odd statement. And it's odd because Socrates is saying, you know, if I believed your argument, I wouldn't trust you as a person. <laughs> right? So th that's interesting because it's basically saying that we can recognize this kind of viciousness in a person, and that when we see this in a person, we don't trust them. And when we don't see this in the person, we do trust them or something like that, right? So there's kind of a social dimension to this goodness and badness of the person. And he also says that it's a kind of a divine thing to be able to make this argument on the other side's behalf. And so this is interesting, right? Because most of the time, I think people in religious circles when they're dealing with divine issues, don't look at the strongest argument on the other side. They actually usually look at the argument that is strongest to serve their religious view, and they try to play down the other side's arguments. That's not always the case, but it seems to be generally the case. But with Plato, we have this idea that if I'm going to be in service of the gods or of God or the form of the good or whatever you want to think about when it comes to that stuff, that I have to follow the truth wherever it leads. And I have to look at the strongest argument and I have to accept that and I have to follow that because that's what the gods would want me to do. And that is pretty different from the idea that I get my religious or spiritual view purely from a belief that was handed to me, right? So here, it has to be reflective. And furthermore, the way that this argument is going here, and the lack of response in a sense, and this pointing towards some internal source for the answer, that all sounds like experiential wisdom, going back to our discussion about the divide the line earlier. 
Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up that there's a social element to this, because just to segue into the next part in the next episode, when they keep pressing Socrates about, you know, what's your answer? And he says, is the state larger than the individual? They respond, it is. And then he starts looking at how justice exists in the state to derive some sort of inclination. That's right. What it That's might right. Absolutely. And, and, and as you said, we're going to get into this in the next episode. But it is very interesting because he doesn't actually end this conversation without answering them. But he shifts gears dramatically, really. So much so that a person reading The Republic, as soon as this next conversation begins, forgets that it's actually a response to Glaucon and Adimantus's challenge bolstering Thrasymachus's argument. And they start to think of it as purely a discussion about what would be a good state, you know, a state that's just. And so we'll, we'll get into this in our next episode. But it is very interesting because if we think about it, if we could figure out the internal mechanisms of the state, then we might be able to answer this question about the internal state of a person. At least that's what I think Socrates may be hoping for. So that was a great discussion. And just to go back to a few points that we mentioned, because I think they're worth mentioning again, one would be about the ring of Gyges. So it's interesting because, you know, I actually had the same thought experiment as a kid. What if I could be invisible, right? What would I do and, and how many things I could get away with? But it's interesting in the sense that it's presented as an argument to show that the unjust life and the unjust person would actually derive more happiness, at least more happiness on earth. Or at least that's the way the argument is presented as an extension of Thrasymachus's earlier point. So thinking about that, there does start to, you know, the problem of evil or why evil exists in the first place, right? Where did it come from? If God is all good, did God create evil? I mean, where did it come from? This is a, an interesting idea that I think starts creeping up in the background. And I just want to know your thoughts on that in terms of how it ties into the unjust versus the just person. The problem of evil was alive and well in days of old, and we see that a lot of ideas that we think of as kind of Renaissance or post-Renaissance ideas were already alive and well in Plato's writings. And as you said, right, the problem of evil was really in the background here. And a lot of times when people talk about the problem of evil, one of the ways they state the problem is that it really comes down to this problem of bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people and people seeing that and not being able to reconcile that with the idea that the universe is just or that there's universal justice or something like that. And if Plato is wrong and the just person is really not the happiest of all people, then that bolsters the argument for the problem of evil, right? Being a real problem. If, on the other hand, Socrates, Plato, and friends, Aristotle are right, and there is something very deeply true about the idea that the just or good person is the happiest of people, then that's going to be a potential answer, or at least part of the answer, to why the problem of evil can be answered or how to understand life and the good life in the face of what we sometimes view as persistent evil. So that's an interesting point. Do you mind explaining that a little bit? The idea is that, you know, if I'm living my life and I'm trying to make sense of my life, 
then something like universal justice needs to be the case. And there, the idea there is that if you do good things, those good things are going to be returned to you in some way. If you do bad things, those bad things are going to be visited upon you in some way. And so often, right, in Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, the idea is that God is going to mete out punishment, you know, at some point in the future and going to reconcile all of these wrongs and good deeds and balance the sheet so that everybody is where they should be. And the reason why that's necessary is because life doesn't seem fair. And it doesn't seem to be the case when you look at life that things work out fairly. And another version of this idea is the idea of karma, right? So the idea of karma is that any actions that I make, any things that I do in my life will at some point in the future come back to me for better or worse. And it may not be in this life, right? If we're going to build reincarnation into the idea, which seems to be pretty necessary because of the problem of evil, <laughs> right? I have to have some future life where I could do really well if I suffered some horrible death that I didn't deserve. Or if I suffer some horrible death that I didn't deserve, that's because I did something terrible in my past life. So the idea of reincarnation and the idea of karma in Buddhism serves the function of giving us a sense of universal justice, or at least making it possible for there to be universal justice. And the same kind of thing is true about the idea of heaven and hell in other traditions, where the role of heaven is really to make it right, and the role of hell is really to, to make it right in the sense of punishing the unjust, and uh, heaven rewards the just. And so that's kind of a little bit of what I was talking about. Does that, does that make sense? It does. And it's interesting that once you start going back in time and start reading some of these older works, you start looking at, you know, we're so accustomed to seeing the solutions or, you know, what people came up with to address the issue as being the issue now, you know, for example, but now we're actually going at the root of the problem in some ways, right? And it's just interesting to see it from a backwards view because we're so used to thinking of this dichotomy, right? Heaven, hell, good, bad, all this. But once you start going back further, you start to realize that it was really about people trying to reconcile the bad things around them, right? And they start posing these questions, and then we're just basically reflecting on the ideas of the solutions they had to these problems. Maybe just a foreshadowing for future episodes, but it's very interesting because the problem of evil is normally kind of contextualized in this Judeo-Christian way, as you were just saying, really. And it doesn't have to be. Actually, the problem of evil can be thought of in purely humanistic terms, if we think about the rise of the Nazis and the Holocaust and all the atrocities that occurred during World War II in Germany and by the Germans. And the reason why it's a really important example of a humanistic problem of evil is because Germany was the real flower of the Renaissance. And they produced unbelievable numbers of philosophers and composers and scientists and psychologists and sociologists. And they really, I mean, they were the flower of the Renaissance and the real blooming of humanity in terms of the Enlightenment. And they were at the forefront and the epitome of all that when the Holocaust and other problems in World War II occurred. And that is, you know, puzzling and causes people to feel like they shouldn't have hope in humanity. They shouldn't have hope in uh, the progress of humanity and so forth. And so that's a purely humanistic version of the problem of evil, right? I'm glad you contextualized that for us. 
And we want to inspire all of you on your search for truth, uh, but keep in mind the complexities and the nuances. And we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends. Thank you.